Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Year of Plenty podcast, the show for all things real food, where we take a deep dive to explore and build appreciation for real food and drink, as well as those processes that bring it to the table. As always, I'm your host, Paul DeWieland, and today I have another solo sode for you guys. So up here in Wisconsin right now, the fall season has really, you know, come in full throttle. Uh, the leaves are turning all sorts of beautiful colors. The weather has really been fluctuating. We've gotten some really, really cold days. And it's also been very rainy. I guess the only downside is that the days are turning to an end way faster than in the summer. And that's something that's always a little sad. But besides that, I got to say, I'm actually pretty excited for winter this year. Now, one of the reasons I'm so excited about winter and the fall is because of all the holidays. And the one that's coming up pretty soon here is Halloween. So, you know, I became pretty curious about Halloween and I wanted to know if there's a connection to food. Obviously, there is a connection, you know, through trick-or-treating and the candy that's given out. And people obviously like to have parties on Halloween and make Halloween food. But I was wondering if there's a deeper historical connection between food and Halloween. So I decided to do some research and, you know, turn all the information I found into a little podcast episode for you guys. So there you go. You can see this episode as a brief overview of the Halloween history you know, obviously, I'm not going to cover everything. I'm just going to cover some topics. And I also want to share, you know, what sort of role food played in the shaping of this spooky day. All right, so let's dive straight into some history, why don't we? Halloween is believed to have its origins from an old Celtic festival, actually. And this festival is called Samhain. Now, if you don't know this, the Celts were a group of people that lived across Europe at one point in time. But, you know, later they really settled in places like Ireland, Scotland and Wales, as well as some of those other regions in the British Isles. And this is important to know because it's believed that one of the most important days in the Celtic calendar was Samhain, which marked the end of the harvest season and the beginning of winter. So I guess, you know, a lot of scholars have kind of compared Samhain or the festi festival of Samhain as our New Year's Eve or you can compare it to our New Year's Day, but they would have celebrated it on November 1st. Now, according to History.com, people believe that on Samhain Eve, which you know we call Halloween today, so that would be October 31st, spirits of those who died over the last year were out and about traveling the lands. Those spirits were you know, so active because on this day they were granted access into what they called the other world. So yeah, definitely not the kind of day you want to be walking through the woods by yourself on. Now, scholars don't actually know all that much about the actual practices during Shawin. And, you know, this is because the best accounts we really have are records of the ancient festival that were written down by Christian monks around 300 CE. But from these written records, we know that Shawin was the big day of the yearly cycle for the Celtic people. And two traditions were associated with this Day of the Dead celebration. One of them was lighting giant bonfires, and the other one was leaving out offerings of food and drink for those wandering spirits. So if Shavan was an early influence on what we call Halloween today, then some of those food and drink traditions of Shavan still persist in Halloween today. And that's really the first food connection to Halloween. But hang on. There's more. According to the Encyclopedia of Food and Culture, Volume 2, by Solomon H. Kotz and William Weiss Weaver, and this is a giant book, by the way, if you have never looked at it, 
our library here in town has it, and I took a deep dive. It's really great. It has everything about food in there, and it's just, you know, for a foodie like me, it's just a dream come true. But in this book, they quote that the tradition of mumming, dressing in disguise and performing from home to home in exchange for food and drink, as well as pranking, perhaps an imitation of the wandering spirits, had become part of the occasion, end quote. So the whole idea of trick-or-treating, you know, dressing up like creatures of the dark and going around from house to house asking for food might already have been a thing a very, very long time ago. So again, it seems like food played an important role in those traditions. But, you know, as I said, the evidence about Shaban is limited. There's still a lot of debate between scholars out there. I wish we knew what kind of foods these people were using as offerings, but I'm guessing it's, you know, similar to today. Obviously not the candy, but it would probably be something like meat, as well as especially those seasonal fruits and vegetables that are harvested in the late summer. What we know for sure is that around 800 CE, Pope Gregory IV officially changed the date of a Christian holiday called All Saints Day, which is also called the Feast of All Saints or All Hallows. All Saints Day was originally celebrated on uh, May 13th, and it was a holiday in honor of the dead saints in the Christian church. But Pope Gregory decided to change the date to November 1st. Now remember, the Celts celebrated Shavin on November 1st. So some scholars actually believe that, you know, changing the date of All Saints Day to November 1st could have been an attempt to Christianize those heathen Celts by really deliberately trying to take over Shavin and matching it up with a Christian holiday. But those traditions of Shavin persisted. So eventually the church added another holiday on November 2nd, which they called All Souls Day, or the Feast of All Souls. And this day was supposed to complement the Day of All Saints on November 1st, and it was a day to really honor the dead more in general. So the, the Day of All Saints was all about the saints, obviously, and the, the Day of All Souls was about honoring all those dead souls. Now, according to History.com, the All Souls Day on November 2nd really followed similar traditions of the Celtic celebration of Shavin, like, you know, bonfires and masquerading, for example. In their article, How Trick-or-Treating Became a Halloween Tradition, History.com states about the Day of All Souls, quote, Poor people would visit the houses of wealthier families and receive pastries called soul cakes in exchange for a promise to pray for the souls of the homeowner's dead relatives. Known as souling, the practice was later taken up by children who would go from door to door asking for gifts such as food, money, and ale, end quote. So as you just heard, even after the Celtic celebrations of Shavan kind of blended with those Christian holidays, food and drink was still an important part. And the cool thing is we actually know of one of those foods that they would give out to the children and the poor during All Souls Day. They called them soul cakes, which, you know, were like little shortbreads or cupcakes, I'm guessing. Now, those are not quite the bags of candy kids come home with today, but instead they were, you know, homemade baked goods, which I personally would much rather eat. So again, in summary, we have, we have Shavin, the Celtic holiday, and then we have those Christian holidays, All Saints Day on November 1st, and All Souls Day on November 2nd. And those days are really believed to have shaped Halloween as it is today. And if you listened carefully earlier, I kind of mentioned how Halloween became celebrated on October 31st, but I want to go over this again quick. According to the article, Halloween, Costumes, History, 
myths, and more on nationalgeographic.com. The night of October 31st, which would have been the day before Shavan, or, you know, Shavan Eve, continued the Celtic traditions of bonfires, costumes, and parades under the name of All Hallows' Eve, which was kind of the Christian name for it. And this later became known as Halloween. So as you can see, our Halloween traditions might be very, very old. And I think it's especially cool to see the similarities between, you know, trick-or-treating and those ancient Celtic and Christian holidays. And what's even better is that if these ancient accounts are true, food was an important part of these traditions from the beginning. But the big question we still have to answer is how the heck did Halloween come to the U.S. if it kind of started over in Europe? Well, the traditions were brought to North America through Irish and British colonists, actually. But it wasn't widely celebrated at all. At least not until we had an influx, like a large influx of immigrants from Europe, which was around the 19th century. And, you know, a lot of those traditions really came from the Irish who fled the potato famine in 1840. They really revived their old traditions of souling and dressing up in costumes in the U.S. around the early 1900s. And since then, Halloween has, you know, become the festival of autumn, really. And as such, the foods associated with it are foods of the harvest. But again, we see these traditions going all the way back to the Celtic festival of Shavin. Now, from what I was reading back in Ireland, Halloween is actually celebrated much like Thanksgiving here in the U.S. So family meals, a plethora of foods and, you know, gatherings of relatives are very common over there on Halloween. But we do also see some similarities between the trick-or-treating we do here in the U.S. and the kind of Halloween they celebrate in Ireland. According to the Encyclopedia of Food and Culture, quote, There's pranking throughout the season and Halloween rhyming in which young people go from door to door for weeks in advance of October 31st. They present the rhyme or perform a song in return for nuts, apples and money, end quote. So that's what they kind of do in Halloween in Ireland. And again, I'm basing this off what I read uh, in the Encyclopedia of Food and Culture by Solomon Katz and William Wise Weaver. So, you know, if you're from Ireland and you think this, this doesn't really hold true anymore these days, let me know. But I would say those traditions are probably still pretty active over there. So yeah, what they do over in Ireland is not really the trick-or-treating as we know it here in the U.S. The trick-or-treating of today here in the U.S. actually really, really took off after the Second World War, because that's when we had the baby boom, and there were no more sugar rationings, so trick-or-treating really had a chance to boom and just become super popular. Without this constraint on sugar, candy companies were now free to, you know, mass-produce sweets again, which was then, of course, followed by a national marketing campaign specifically aimed at Halloween and trick-or-treating, so that kind of blew it up as well. So that's all I really have on the history, and you know, it's kind of a, I know it's brief, but I really hope you could see that connection to food. And you know, it's kind of insane how much candy is bought and shared on Halloween in the U.S. these days. According to the National Retail Federation, the trends for 2019 estimate that about $2.6 billion will be spent on candy alone. That's so much candy. Honestly, that number kind of made me shake my head. I understand that everyone loves trick-or-treating and that candy is a huge part of the tradition by now. But if I think back to, you know, my days of trick-or-treating, I would get so much candy that I, I could eat it for weeks, honestly. And most of the time, they were like the cheapest quality sweets you could buy. That's something I would never do today. I think over the last couple of years, 
it's become pretty clear that, you know, refined sugar in excess and processed foods can really be bad for us and that they can lead to all sorts of chronic health problems. And yes, the standard American diet, the normal diet of, you know, an average American is way too high in sugar. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not here to demonize sugar right now. After all, you know, I am a foodie. I love traditional baked goods and sweets. It's always so interesting to me to see how different cultures have really come up with their own foods that really make them unique. In my eyes, sugar really becomes a problem if eaten in like great excess, which a lot of us are doing these days. So I personally, I'm going to try to avoid it throughout the year as best as I can. But during those holidays, you know, I almost always eat some of those traditional baked sweets and baked goods. And I especially value them if they're homemade with real recognizable ingredients because, you know, from my experience, those store-bought cakes and cookies almost always have a ton of ingredients in them that I would never find in my grandma's Christmas cookies, for example. And you know what? If you wanted to, I'm sure there are recipes out there that incorporate honey instead of, like, super refined sugar. So there's always alternatives that, you know, call for minimal ingredients and, you know, really those real foods. But going back to candy... You can keep candy for a long time, you know, without it going bad. So those kids are probably going to be eating their trick-or-treating bounty for weeks. And they aren't just getting a ton of sugar. They're going to be getting a ton of artificial ingredients with those sweets as well. So I guess what I'm trying to say with this little rant here is that I wish Halloween, you know, would still continue some of those old traditions of sharing foods like home-baked goods and seasonal foods like nuts and apples and, and so on. So pretty much all those foods of the season... Not only do I personally see them as healthier, but, you know, they also have some history behind them. And I think that's important to know because that's going to make us appreciate our food much more. Now, I see why, you know, giving out home-baked goods or fruits could be a problem to some parents or probably to a lot of parents. Throughout the years, there have been rumors of, you know, and fears of people really lacing candy with uh, poison and even putting razor blades in apples and all that. So just some really messed up stuff. I don't know if that's true, but I can see how parents would say heck no to that, you know. So that's probably another reason why people prefer giving out prepackaged candy from the store. Okay, enough ranting on, you know, candy and my thoughts and all that. What else did I want to talk about? Oh yeah. A lot of you asked me to share some healthy candy ideas that you could give out on Halloween, which, you know, would be at least a little better than some of those really cheap, super processed candies. And honestly, I couldn't find too much. A lot of the quote-unquote healthier candies, you know, are, are pretty expensive and they just aren't perfect. But they're two reasonable alternatives that I consider as being real foods that you could give out and that you probably could find at a local store. And those are, you know, dark chocolate, the less sugar the better, and, you know, honey sticks. I'm a big fan of honey. I don't eat it all the time, but, you know, it's one of my favorite sugar alternatives, to be honest. And then there are also some organic gummies and lollipops out there, some brands that I found with uh, minimal ingredients. Two cool brands I found are Annie's Homegrown Organic Really Peely Fruit Tapes. That's a mouthful. And um, Yum Earth Assorted Flavor Lollipops. So, you know, you could check those out online and see if maybe you can get them somewhere around you. I'm pretty sure I saw that you can get some of those at Target, for example. And if you Google something along the lines of healthy alternative Halloween candy, you should find some more alternatives. All right, so there's that. So I do want to share what my favorite foods of the season are. 
because I think that kind of plays into Halloween and, you know, it plays into the vibe of October and November and all that. And, you know, after giving it some thought, I have to go with pumpkins and squashes. I think they're a must-have in every home garden. Not only do they taste amazing, and you can really prepare them in many different ways, but a single pumpkin plant can yield a ton of food. And, you know, I grew a couple pumpkin plants back in Germany, and I remember we had so much harvest. And the cool thing is, you know, you can store those for a long time. So I was eating pumpkins for weeks. So I really think those are like the perfect veggie going into winter. And one of my absolute favorite ways to cook pumpkin in a really simple way is this. You cut it into slices. Imagine cutting it into pieces that kind of re resemble apple slices. Obviously, so, so you cut it in half first. You get all the seeds out and then you kind of cut it into apple-like slices. And then all you really do is you put some salt, pepper, some ground-up vanilla and a tiny bit of nutmeg on them. Once you have it all seasoned, you throw them on like a baking tray and a baking sheet, and then you just bake them until you think they're done. Believe me, it tastes amazing, and it's so simple. Now, when it comes to seasonal baked goods, I would have to go with pumpkin pie. This is something I never saw growing up in Germany, actually, but it's huge here in the US. And pumpkin pie, you can actually fairly easily turn into a low-carb dessert and still have it taste super good. So I actually tried out a recipe and I changed it up a little bit and wrote it up and put it on you on my website for you guys. So if you want to check that out, it's going to be on www.theyearofplenty.com or uh, in the show notes, I'll link the post to it. This recipe actually uses almond flour instead of grain flour. So that already, you know, lowers the carb count a lot. And instead of using all that refined sugar, the recipe calls for monk fruit sweetener and erythritol which I like personally, those are both naturally derived. But again, if you don't really want a low carb cake, you just don't want that refined sugar, you could just probably use honey. Just try it out, you know, that's what it's all about. And now the very last recipe I wanna share and talk to you guys about are those soul cakes I talked about earlier in the episode. Those are those traditional baked goods that people would give out to the poor and the kids on All Souls Day. Again, the giving and receiving of soul cakes is largely associated with being one of those traditions that really, really shape trick-or-treating. So I actually found a really cool write-up and recipe for soul cakes, which I've linked in the show notes for you, for you guys, so you can check that out as well. Remember, if you don't know what the show notes are, it's pretty much the description of the podcast episode in your podcast app, or you can find them on my website, www.theyearofplenty.com. All right, I really hope you guys enjoyed this episode in Halloween and, you know, that the role that food kind of played or has played in, in the holiday throughout history. So now I'm super curious. I want to know what some of your favorite Halloween foods are and some of those seasonal foods that you really like to eat. You can follow me on Instagram, at Poldy Wheeland, all one word, and then just send me a message, you know. I'm curious to hear your guys' preferences. Also, if you try out that pumpkin pie recipe or that soul cake recipe that I posted, let me know how it turned out for you. You know, post it on Instagram, tag me in it, and I'll, I'll repost it for sure and share it with everyone. So I hope you guys found this episode interesting, and I hope you now have a better idea of, you know, how food kind of relates to Halloween in this historical context. And yeah, I wish you a very, very spooky Halloween at the end of this month. That's all I have for you guys today. Please, please, please share this episode with your family and friends. Share it in social media. Also, make sure you hit that subscribe button in your podcast app 
The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. You can either find an awesome subscribe page on my website, which is www.theyearofplenty.com, or if you go to my Instagram or Twitter, my Instagram is at poldywheeland, and the Twitter handle is theyearofplenty. Uh, in the bio, you'll find a link that takes you to all the subscribe links for all the platforms, so it's super easy. You can also you know, just grab your friend's phone, your mom's phone, or your grandpa's phone, and just you know, hit the subscribe button for them. Finally, if you like this episode and you could learn something from it, please leave a five-star review in your podcast app. This is just going to let new listeners find a podcast and also allow the podcast to get ranked. And this way, more foodies like you and me can join us in exploring all these foods and food processes. Also, I just want to say thank you to anyone who takes time out of their day to listen to these episodes. And I've been getting great feedback from you guys. So please keep that up. That's really going to allow me to, you know, make the show better and make sure that I'm giving you guys some value. Thank you for listening. See you soon.